Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And for every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are equal, that they are endowed with certain unalienable rights. So the question is, is it? Is it self-evident that we are equal? Is it self-evident that we have rights, certain rights? Is that all kind of just obvious, self-evident? Sort of an appeal to natural law, just like it's the things we all know. We all know that there are rights and equality. But the question is this, and it's one of the ones we're talking about this month, is do people, do human beings have inherent worth and dignity? Is there such a thing as universal dignity? And the answer is, in our modern world, we would say, of course they do. Everyone has inherent worth and dignity. But then my follow-up question is, how do you know? On the basis of what? On the basis of what are people equal? People have inherent worth. And most of us would actually, if you just asked on the street, if we walked outside and we said, hey, what, what's the basis of worth and rights? You'd say, well, it's just true. Everyone knows. We all know that this is true. It's sort of an obvious thing, right? But it's not self-evident. It's actually not self-evident. Science cannot prove that humans have worth or dignity. You just can't prove it from science alone. There's no provable difference on biology in terms of uh, value. The value, there's no difference of value between, let's say, a boy and a bird and a rock to which most little sisters would say, of course, we knew that. <laughs> Science would tell you the universe is random and without intention. It just is. We're here, it is, things are. Philosophers, too, when they're being honest and dig down deep enough, know that this is true as well. There's no such thing, as Nietzsche said over 100 years ago, no such thing as inherent dignity or universal rights. It, takes, it actually takes a religious leap of faith to believe in worth or morality, to believe that there's such a thing as right or wrong, that you could call something wrong or good or true. You can't do that philosophically. There's no basis for it. And Nietzsche hated this. He hated that political scientists and political leaders and philosophers in his day, about 140 years ago, that they would argue for these self-evident natural truths. And he was like, no, it's actually all based on Christianity, which you can't prove, and everybody knows there's no such thing as a god. He was pretty angry about it, but this is how he summed it up. 
another Christian concept, no less crazy, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity, the concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. Christianity is behind all modern theories of equal rights, and he thinks it's rubbish. It's baseless, philosophically incoherent. It's a leap of faith. You have to believe in a God that you can't prove. Now, modern moral philosophers following Nietzsche like 50, 80, 100 years later today, they, they realize that's dangerous. If you say there's no grounds for equal rights, for human worth, it's dangerous. So you try to ground, modern moral philosophers, ethicists will try to ground dignity and rights, secular dignity and rights in something. And one of the things that they ground it in is capabilities. So it's either capabilities or community. Capability is this. It's the superiority of humans in nature. So going back to that illustration, a boy is more complex than a bird, and that's more complex than a rock. Again, to which little sisters might say, maybe not. But the modern moral philosophers talk about sentience or being sentient, and they don't just talk about thinking. Like animals think, humans think, rocks don't think but it's also things a little bit more complex than thinking. We, as sentient beings, feel and act and think, but we also self-understand. We communicate, we anticipate, we perceive ourselves over time. That self-perception, self-understanding, that relational capacity is make, makes us sentient and superior to the animals, and therefore we have worth and dignity and human rights, even though a mouse or a pig or a dog might not. But the problem with the sentient argument and our capabilities being the basis is that it, it's basically making degrees of humanness. Because if being sentient, being more capable than an animal makes you human and deserving of rights, what does it say of a person who is, say, mentally disabled? isn't quite as capable, isn't quite as sentiently developed. And this is where an honest atheist philosopher would push it even further. So let's not even talk about whether or not you can end the life of some of the unborn. Peter Singer, a Princeton bioethics professor, he's a chair of bioethics, okay? Chair of bioethics at Princeton, and also an animal rights um, advocate he wrote this, he said, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping they exist over time. They are not persons on the basis of sentient being, being their capabilities. The life of a newborn is le of less value than the life of a pig, dog, or chimpanzee. Now this is just obvious. Look, if you go on intelligence, for instance, an average dog is more intelligent by IQ standards than an infant. It's not until a baby hits about toddler age that they equal a dog. If your dog is sick, in pain, what do you do with it? Potentially, you put it down. And Peter Singer says there may be times when it's okay to put down an infant. If you're going to play it out philosophically. Not to be outdone, Steven Pinker, a more outlandish thinker, a psychologist, uh, psychology professor from Harvard, he wrote, the right to life must come down, come from morally significant traits we humans possess. 
And there's the rub. Infants don't possess these traits any more than mice do. Both of these quotes I got from articles, one online, one a Washington Post article. And what's interesting is that the arguments that were being made in the articles were like, these guys are crazy. Their arguments are absurd. Their arguments are morally reprehensible. But they gave no basis for saying that you couldn't go where they went. They're actually philosophically pretty airtight, Peter Singer and Steven Pinker. You can like say it's absurd, but on the basis of what? And the articles that I read had no arguments against it. Now, most people actually in philosophy today and in kind of ethics don't go on the capability as the sentient thing. Um, instead, they talk about community. It's, uh, we all agree on moral standards. Like as a culture, we agree it is, uh, slavery is wrong. As a culture, we agree that it's right to protect the life of people, to provide for the poor. As a culture, we know this. And some people in kind of the uh, evolutionary biology would say that our human rights that has developed is an evolutionary development. It's sort of like, let's say 100 million years ago, there were people murdering each other, and that wasn't really good for society, so there was a genetic tendency to evolve increasing survival because murder was not helpful. Social harmony is a good thing, and so that genetic tendency increased. But it, there's also an arrogance in our modern age. It's basically saying this. Um, we know more now. We would never do what they did back then. There's a chronological snobbery and a, and a blind superiority that says we know we would never be like that. The problem with even this argument, which is actually a fairly good one, that community standards and things we all agree on help to kind of generate our rules, our laws, our equal rights, that sort of thing, is can whole societies be wrong on an ethical issue? How to treat one another? It actually takes, I believe, a period of relative peace and prosperity, like we've lived in the West post-World War II, to assume that we would never do what other cultures have done when they've had collective power. We'd never retaliate like the Hutus did with the Tutsis in Rwanda in the 90s. We'd never do that. We would never blame or, or, or kind of despise every other nation as the Imperial Japanese did during World War II. We would never blame an entire ethnicity for our economic problems as the Nazis did. No, we wouldn't do that. And maybe we wouldn't, but I wonder if we would ever collectively get really pragmatic. That our, our rights, our ethics would get very pragmatic. Let's say this. Let's say inflation increases, your income decreases, healthcare costs soar. And over the course of time, those healthcare costs soar more and more and more. Might we ever get pragmatic in realizing that it costs a lot to care for the aged? sick, the disabled. It would be better for everyone if we... What I'm trying to argue is this. Our basis, our basis, your basis for human rights, equality, human dignity matters. Christianity bases it not on just some philosophical we know. It actually bases it in God's word. In Christianity, equal rights and human dignity are based on being created in the image of God. Let's read that famous set of lines, that beautiful declaration of humanity in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 
God creates everything and gets to his final element of creation, the pinnacle. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created them. God said, and it was so. That word likeness or image of, it's like a painting, right? Like that painting is a painting of Mona Lisa. I don't know what she actually looked like. That painting is a landscape of the Hudson River Valley. I could go there and see it. It's not the Hudson River Valley, but man, I see the Hudson River Valley in that painting. But theologians, scholars, biblical scholars, they, they argue on what does it mean. To say that you and I are made in the image of God, what does that actually mean? And many of the arguments are along the lines of, well, it has to do with our reason, our moral goodness, our ability to relate to God. All of these things are true. But I don't think that's the fundamental point that God is getting at in this declaration. It's not just how we are like God and the animals are not. Because again, remember what Dean said about five weeks ago. He said in Genesis 1 and 2, we're not asking the question how and what, but who and why. So here's what I'm getting at is to be like God, made in God's image, is an, it's an effect and intention of being made in the image of God. So this is what I mean is this. A bird flies, right? But does flying make something a bird? No. 747s fly, baseballs fly, bottle rockets fly. Flying doesn't make something a bird. Being like God does not make us inherently those who are made in the image of God. And it's true that our thoughts, our desires, our actions are intended to reflect the creator. We are made in his image, so reflect him. That's our calling, our purpose. But not our status, not our identity. Doing things like God does not make us inherently in the image of God. Here's a question to kind of help us to get around it. Is murder wrong? Is murder wrong? On the basis of what? Again, that's the question we always ask. Is murder wrong on the basis of what? A mother pig has six little piglets. This is sad, so you might want to cover your ears on it. But if the littlest one, she might push away, let it starve to death for the sake of the health of the other five. A lion, a lion will attack and kill an aging gazelle and eat it. One wolf might fight another wolf and kill it as they're battling over who is the alpha male in the, in the pack. Did those animals do something morally reprehensible? Did they do something evil? We'd say no. So why is it wrong for a person to murder another person? Maybe it will help them to survive. Maybe it's necessary for their pack. Why is it wrong? Like, if you think about it, the, the mother pig, you're not like, yeah, we should put her on trial. The lion, after eating the gazelle, isn't walking around with shame the next day, like, oh, geez, oh, geez, what did I do yesterday? 
did I, did I really eat that thing? I should turn myself in. I mean, but hopefully we would. So what is the difference? The difference is not just moral capacity. Murder is wrong because God says so, and the reason God says so is in Genesis 9. Following the flood after the restoration, in a recreative order, the Lord declares to Noah in something that sounds very similar to Genesis 1.27, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Basically, do not murder because you are made in the image of God. There's inherent worth and value there. You are more dignified, worthy, and valuable than anything in creation. You are divinely, supremely significant. Therefore, murder is wrong. Not because of human rationality, not because we have feelings or build stuff or are morally good. Murder is wrong because God has a connection with us. He has a concern for everyone who is made in his image. Modern secular equality is based on doing and not being. And this is an important thing to, to hit at, is in order to have equality nowadays, you must be able to do the same things as somebody else, right? If I can't do the same things, we're not equal. This implies, underneath of it, it implies that worth, our worth, is based on what we can and can't do. And again, what does this say with regards to those who actually can't do as much? The incapacitated, the disabled, the unborn. Modern equality, saying like we have to be able to do the same things, simply reinforces our, that our worth is based on measuring up. Your worth is based on your achievements. The more you can do, the more you do do, the more worthy you are. You're valuable if you can do stuff. If you can't do stuff, you're not as valuable. So when people often ask the question, do I matter? They don't look to God, they look at what they've accomplished. And they feel like, gosh, I'm nobody. But Christian equality is not based on what we do, it's based on our being, being human. Because God made us and said, you are valuable. Being made in the image of God declares that all people are equally valuable regardless of physical, mental, emotional, social differences. From conception to natural death because we're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, every one of us, every person has infinite dignity and worth. Martin Luther King Jr., summed it up in that famous line, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard. Christianity declares that every person matters immensely and every person matters equally. And if this is true, if this is true, if it's true that every person matters equally because of God, and it's not based on what you do, your accomplishments, your abilities, it's not based on how pretty you are, how tall you are, how strong you are. It's not based on the color of your skin, your education, your dollars in your back pocket, or whatever we have it on now. If it's just a declaration of God for all human beings, that 
should humble us. It should especially humble the successful and the satisfied as well as the religious and good. You are not any better than anyone else because you've got a house in Northern Virginia and a great job. Significance and dignity is received by God, not accomplished by us. It's not about our capabilities. It's about being conceived. And while that should humble those of us who are a little bit proud, who feel good about our successes, fairly religious, it should also lift up anybody who feels weak, who's struggling in life, who feels like an outcast, or who because of your present or past, are filled, you're filled with guilt and shame. If you do not measure up to everyone else, if you feel like your life has had a lot of failures, if you're struggling with feelings of worth and shame, and you just have heard the voices of what others have said to you, what your spouse has said to you, what your parents have said to you, what your friends have said to you, and it has built up this sense of like, I am not worth anything. Or if you struggle in life, there's all these successful people, you struggle with addiction, or some sin, sins in your life, you've ruined your life with choices you've made, hear this. You are no less spiritually and eternally significant. God made you the end. Being made in the image of God calls us not just to rest in this status and identity of invaluable worth and dignity, but it calls us to radical care and concern for all persons. Since being made in the image of God is received from God, it's based on God, not anything else. It's not how we are like God, more morally better than other people. Therefore, it grounds us in a need to reach out in love and mercy to all people equally. As one Christian writer who has reflected on disability wrote, all people without exception are in the image of God, all people. This glorious truth grounds human dignity and human destiny and requires respect and protection for every human being. Being made in the image of God calls us to treat every person as infinite and eternally valuable. When we talk about being made in the image of God, it has implications on ethics and rights, you know. And the implications are built out of the things that we do or don't do to one another. It's as if we're doing them to God. In fact, the one-on-one -on -one equation is so strong in the Bible. In Genesis 9, 6, of course, that we just read, it said that if you murder somebody, you basically are murdering God. They're made in my image. In Matthew 25, Jesus has this famous description of the sheep and the goats, and he says, look, when you fed the hungry, when you visited the prisoner, when you clothed the naked, you were doing so to me, and when you didn't, you were not doing so to me. You're like, well, you know, I mean, I just, it's just some guy. And Jesus is like, no, that's me. How do you deal with me? In the ancient world, 
they had idols and statues, right? You would have an idol of a god. You would go into a temple, and the idol would be in there, and that idol represented the god. Now, look, they didn't actually believe that was the god. The, the statue of Aphrodite was not actually the god, it, but it was symbolic of the god in such a way that its presence, its physical like being, gave confidence to the people. And similarly, statues were erected by kings and emperors in any city that was part of their realm as a reminder of whose realm this was, who was in charge, whose authority ruled over this land. Now, the statues, the idols, were not actually the god, were not actually the king, but they were so significantly entwined in it that to topple an image, to topple a statue, was to say that this god is not a god. Look, it has no power. I just knocked over the statue and nothing happened to topple the statue of the emperors to say he does not have authority here, to reject the authority of the king that that symbolized. So think about the implications of that with how we treat one another. If we are made in the image of God, if we are the statue that says this is God's, this is where God reigns, anything we do or don't do to one another is a direct attack on God's authority, or a worship of God's glory. Being made in the image of God, knowing that every person matters, regardless of what they do, accomplish their abilities, has implications for human rights. In the modern world, justice and human rights, actually, justice and human rights apart from a belief in God or something that equates to God, it's unprovable. You cannot prove that something is morally right or wrong just out of thin air. You just can't. You can say we collectively agree on this right now, even though that might change. It's a flimsy foundation for building a just and equitable society. As one philosopher, to kind of paraphrase, put it, you can't go from survival of the fittest to therefore love one another. Survival of the fittest says the strong survive. So if I kill all of you and I survive, maybe I've just won. How can I then say love one another? One does not lead to the other. Christianity makes the claim quite different. It says that all people are significant. Being created by God in God's image is central to the Christian view of dignity and worth and equal rights. And honestly, even like our values in the West that have pulled away from Christianity are based on that. And as a result of the Christian view of being made in the image of God, we cannot ignore the plight of anyone who is suffering. Even if we disagree with them. but especially the voiceless and the vulnerable. Being made in the image of God has implications for ethics and rights. It also is a calling. There's a purpose in it. So on one level, your status and identity is you are made in the image of God full stop. You have inherent worth and value no matter what you do or don't do. But being made in the image of God is a part of this calling that God puts on us. He says, this is who you are, now live into it. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Relate to one another, relate to me. Be a caretaker of the garden, of the creation. Be one 
and create new life. Be naked and unashamed. We're called to grow into the fullness of being made in the image of God through our relationship with God and our dependence on God. And as a result, we're supposed to reflect God in this world, spreading his glory, his presence, his kingdom reign everywhere. But we don't. And on on many levels, we can't. We're fallen and broken people. From the very beginning, like Robert Cunningham mentioned last week, the serpent goes to the woman in the garden and says, when you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. She already was like God. He was, God had made her in his image, in his likeness. And it was meant to be one that she experienced and lived into in relationship to God. And instead, in eating the fruit, and from then on, we've toppled our own image, rejected the authority of God in our own lives, marred our own wholeness. But God sent his son in Jesus Christ to restore it. In Colossians 1, which we declared in our confession of faith, we read that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we are made in God's image, in is a likeness after God's likeness in his image, but Christ is the image. He is the physical embodiment of God Almighty. Through him, all things were created. He is the man that we were made to be. And through him, we've been reconciled back to God. As it says in verse 19 and 20, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. We've been restored to our creator through Christ so that we can be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We are made in the image of God. That's our status and worth. We are called to live into the fullness of that image, being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says that's our destiny. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of his Son. And over the course of your life, as you're growing in faith, Hopefully, your heart and your life is being shaped in more and more humility, generosity, sacrificial love. Until in eternity, it's like, there's Jesus. Oh, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. Know this. From the very beginning, God declares, I love you. I made you in my image. I love you. He created you to be in relationship with him to know him, to reflect him, to enjoy life to the full through him. But even apart from God, even when you're kind of rejecting him, we're all still eternally significant. We're all still infinitely loved by God, but only with God, only in Christ will our significance and his love be known, be known fully, intimately, eternally. Let's pray. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature in Jesus Christ, 
Grant that we may share the divine life of Jesus, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? 